Welcome to the World Resources Institute podcast. I'm Lawrence McDonald. I'm pleased to welcome back to the studios the director of the Better Bind Lab, Daniel Vinard, who's um, traveled here from the UK. So it's nice to have you in Washington. It's nice to have you back on the show. It's a pleasure to be back. Last time you were here, you were just kicking off the Better Bind Lab. If I remember correctly, you had um, come to WRI after a uh, extended career in the corporate world uh, at uh, Procter & Gamble and then at Mars. Recap for us what led to your interest in food, what brought you to us, and what the Better Bind Lab does. Yeah, well, I mean, my career has been in sustainability, but also marketing and sales uh, in the corporate space. And one of the things that I was very aware of was that in the corporate sector, everyone's great at selling products and really helping change what people buy. But in civil society, typically we're using more outdated tools like trying to give people education or information. And so my kind of ambition or vision is that we really empower the civil society with skills and knowledge about the latest marketing techniques and how to use behavioral sciences to actually get people to buy products that are more sustainable. And so I joined WRI to set up the Better Buying Lab, which uh, basically works with experts in behavior change and marketing uh, and a group of companies to really innovate and test new ways of changing consumption. Uh, and our key focus right now is on how we can shift people's consumption towards eating more plants um, and less meat, especially beef and lamb. I want to dive into a new commentary that uh, you and your co-author, uh, Jonathan Weiss uh, have just published. Um, it's all in a name, How to Boost the Sales of Plant-Based Menu Items. But before I do, I have a question about the link between the kind of work you're doing in the Better Bind Lab and some of our maybe listeners, shall we say, of a certain age are going to remember there was a whole big excitement about social marketing, especially around reproductive health, and that we should we should bring to those behavior changes we wanted to see in in not only reproductive health, but health generally, a kind of a marketing lens. And I'm sure you're familiar with that work. Does the Better Buying Lab just take that social marketing idea and take it further, or is there a distinction to be made there? Well, so the expertise that we're leaning on is really the kind of corporate marketing expertise, so an un deep understanding of consumers, uh, and also an understanding of those factors that really influence what people buy. Um, but we're also using behavioral sciences. So really understanding what influences people's behavior and then the scientific approach by which you go about understanding which types of intervention work. So we definitely are inspired by the social marketing agenda, but for us it's really looking at the whole school of marketing and also behavioral science to, to inform our interventions. And I guess an important distinction is that your partners, if you will, and we're going to hear about them and some of those who ran the experiments, are uh, businesses that are out to earn a profit, whereas a lot of the social marketing was applying marketing techniques to not-for-profit activities. Um, so you're trying to get companies to say, yeah, we can make a bundle doing this good stuff. We've got some great partners, uh, companies like Google, Hilton, Sodexo, you know, some of the biggest companies in the world um, providing food to hundreds of millions of people. So not only are they bringing their expertise, but what's exciting is through this collaborative, we're now taking our solutions and scaling them quickly to have an impact. 
So the commentary that you and Jonathan have written is sharing some early insights that you have gleaned through the Better Buying Lab with your partners. Um, you have styled it as uh, four don'ts and three do's. And as the title says, it's all in a name. It turns out how we talk about food and in particular, what we name it on the menu makes a big difference in whether or not people buy it, which on one hand is a big insight. On the other hand, it's kind of like, well, duh, right? I mean, wouldn't you think when you look at a menu item, the thing that it's named is going to make a big difference in whether or not you order it? Well, well, two years ago, when we started the Better Buying Lab, we brought all of our companies together. And we were sitting around and kind of talking about, well, what do we think are the things that get in the way of people choosing plant-based food? And we all had a hunch that calling something vegetarian, meat-free, or vegan probably just isn't nearly as exciting and as in, uh, appealing as, say, brisket. So we had a hypothesis that actually changing the language of plant-based food could be a really interesting way of actually engaging consumers in plant-based food and, and helping switch them to choose it. So what we've been doing over the last two years is lots of research, um, not only looking at desk research, but commissioning both online studies and field studies ourselves. Um, we've done about eight different experiments that involved over a million consumers. And what we've done is we've taken all of our research as well as the emerging body of research in this space and distilled it down into four, um, uh, I suppose, don'ts for what one should not do <laughs> when naming plant-based food and three things that you really should do. And what's super exciting is as we've kind of started to execute these in the field, we're seeing kind of increase in sales of plant-based food anywhere from 15 to 70%. So great insights, but they seem to be really driving impact now as well. So uh, let's start with the first one, don't use meat-free. Why not? And tell me a story where you found out that this was really true. I mean, who wants to who wants to be told what they're not going to have, uh, I think, is the headline on this. This is a piece of language that just tells you what you're missing. Um, and uh, one of the most interesting experiments we've done was with a retailer called Sainsbury's. It's the second biggest retailer in the UK, and they have a series of cafes in their supermarkets. And with them, we took a series of their dishes and changed the names in a number of their stores and then looked over a, a period of time what that did to sales. And one of the dishes that we changed uh, was meat-free sausage and mash. And we changed it to uh, a name Cumberland Spiced Veggie Sausage and Mash. Cumberland Spice is a typical sausage recipe from the UK. Um, and we also changed it to field-grown sausage and mash. And what we did just through that simple change was we increased sales of that dish um, by 76% and 51%. We've got a few listeners who are scratching their heads. They don't know what mash is. <laughs> uh, it's potato. Squashed. I don't know how to it's describe. mashed potatoes. It's yeah, what it's Americans potato. would call mashed potatoes, yeah. and so these are essentially what we would call vegetarian sausages, where they called them meat-free sausages, and hardly anybody bought them. And then they, what was the, the new name that sold the most? Uh, yes, yeah, so it was meat-free sausage and mash, and then Cumberland spiced veggie sausage and mash. So it still had veggie in it, and nonetheless, it did well. Yes. But I think your next learning is, uh, or somewhere embedded in here is, don't mention veggie at all, basically, right? They could have even done better had they called it, I don't know, Cumberland Spice. I don't know, you can do it. You're the namer of things, <laughs> right? Was veggie, you didn't know because you didn't try doing without veggie entirely. Well, so the second uh, piece of language that we've learned 
doesn't work particularly well is calling stuff vegan, actually. So as I'm sure many people will know, you know, vegan has some positive associations, but actually the majority of people unfortunately have negative associations either with the vegan community or have had poor experiences with the vegan food in the past. And we did some really interesting research um, where we actually analysed about 15 million social media posts from across the US and UK and looked at what the tone of conversation was with uh, products called vegan or plant-based. And what we found was that there was almost twice as much negative comments associated with dishes that were called vegan um, versus something like plant-based. And typically through all of the experiments, uh, vegan hasn't done well. I think the other one, just to to build on your veggie piece, is the other third don't uh, that we found is don't call something vegetarian. So interestingly, comparing to vegan, uh, vegetarian typically does slightly better than vegan. Um, a, A lot of the literature that we outline in the commentary really talks to vegetarians having, yes, some negative associations, but also some more positive ones as well. So there's, there's a study that you link to. It's just an undergraduate honors thesis, but I found it quite compelling. The author writes about, I guess, Kelly, I don't know if it's he or she, um, about uh, becoming vegan. And they've done some sort of undergraduate research. And one of the people that the author interviews said, I was much more frightened about coming out as vegan than I was about coming out as gay. So the social opprobrium that was attached to vegan, at least in this person's view, was pretty heavy. And, and asked, this is our sense of why maybe vegan and vegetarian isn't going to be the language that helps us scale this diet across the whole population. I think its history and its inception was about a group, a minority. And so when people hear the term, they have unfortunately negative associations with food, but they also see it as a group that's not theirs. Um, And so I think this is beautifully demonstrated by a piece of research that we did, um, or was led by London School of Economics, of which we partnered with them, where we actually took a menu of about eight dishes, um, five of which were uh, were meat-based and three were plant-based or vegetarian, and we gave that menu to 2,000 people online. We asked them to choose a dish. We then gave the same menu to another group of people and asked them to choose the dish, but this time took those plant-based dishes and put them in a vegetarian box. And in doing so, we actually reduced online ordering in that online, or sorry, ordering in an online scenario by 56%. And I see this all the time. You go into places and there's a little boxed vegetarian item. I think they're thinking they're going to help the vegetarians find it, but what they're doing is they're telling everybody else, don't order this. Yeah, it's not for you. Yeah. yeah. Although the the uh, profit margin on that might in fact be higher than the meat-based item, so they probably would like to sell more of it. The ingredients are cheaper. Well, we're finding that many restaurants and food service companies around the world really are, are very interested and excited about this transition to plant-based food. Yes, there's some commercial upside, but it's where they're seeing the real interest and growth, especially in young consumers. So if businesses can use the right language, not only will it hopefully help their bottom line, but it'll also help their top line and appeal to uh, a, a, a group of consumers here who are becoming more and more interested in this type of food. I noticed in the commentary in a couple of places you suggested, you know, maybe including a little icon like a leaf to signal that something was plant-based. And 
I can imagine that would help the vegetarians find it, but I was a little surprised that you did that because I would think the vegetarians would see the ingredients and figure it out. And, and did I understand that correctly, that you think those little icons can be helpful and not have the negative impact of using the word vegan or vegetarian? We think so. We haven't done research on that, and there hasn't been any research done by another other group, but we think it's still important to indicate to vegans and vegetarians which dishes are suitable for them. Because even, in, especially in the case of vegan food, even if the simple headline ingredients make it sound like it could possibly be vegan, often there may be sub-ingredients that could compromise that diet. So we think it's important, but we haven't uh, done research in that space yet. Your uh, fourth don't is avoiding what you call healthy restrictive language. What's an example of that? Yeah, so there's a range of language when you think about how you could describe food in a healthy way um, that actually talks about the food in a kind of negative or restrictive way. So low calorie, you know, reduced fat, minimal salt. Again, it talks about what's not there. And so our, our kind of insight within the uh, health language of food is that actually it can work in some examples on some instances if you talk about it in a positive way but actually there's a whole set of language that's quite restrictive and negative which we suggest moving away from and Stanford University did a fascinating study that came out uh, about a year ago now where they actually took a series of plant-based ingredients uh, sorry uh, dishes vegetable dishes and they called a number of them uh, with, uh, sorry, described a number of them of those dishes in a healthy, restrictive way. Um, so, you know, reduced sodium, carrots, etc. And they found by doing that, they reduced the number of students that picked up those vegetables by 25%. Um, so, healthy and restrictive is, is one that we think should be stayed away from. But healthy is also requiring much more research as a piece of language. If you look globally, Actually, this relationship between negative perceptions and sales by describing something healthy um, is not so evident in places like France. So we know that actually there's quite a bit of variation here and we need to collectively build up the body of evidence about it. You tell a story about a test that was done with uh, mango lassies, this Indian-style yogurt-based drink that the uh, testees were not familiar with. One was labeled healthy and one was labeled unhealthy. People thought the unhealthy, it was the same drink. People thought the one labeled unhealthy, they thought it was way tastier than the healthy one. Yeah, I know. And that's, the, that's shocking. <laughs> <laughs> well, even more shocking is an experiment done a couple of years ago on uh, milkshakes, where it was a similar construct, but at the end, they actually measured people's level of ghrelin in their blood system, which is the hunger hormone. And what the researchers at Stanford found was that those who'd been given a milkshake described in a way that was healthy had three times higher level of ghrelin in their system, so were much hungrier. They were hungrier even though it's the same exact thing. Exactly. So, so we're learning that language not only influences the psychological response to food, but also has an impact on physiological response. We've just got about three more minutes. We've now come to the positive part of this do use. I'm going to provenance, flavor, and look and feel. Provenance. So this is really kind of using people's associations with certain places to bring out positive thoughts about how the food will taste, the emotional experience, and how they'll feel eating it. 
great example, we did some work with Panera, um, working with a dish that was their low-fat vegetarian black bean soup. And in uh, a region of LA with about 18 stores, we changed it to Cuban black bean spiced soup. And we saw an increase in sales of 13%. Um, so we're finding that language works. Which one would you rather eat? I want the Cuban <laughs> soup, right? Sounds delicious, isn't it? <laughs> um, we're also finding that, that really emphasizing the language of flavor um, is particularly effective here. So uh, we have done a, a series of experiments uh, on this, but um, one uh, set of experiments we did was um, replicating the type of approach that we did with London School of Economics, but we did our own online studies looking at different food types and dishes. And we found that by using language that talked about um, succulents and zestiness and slow roasted, it did a lot better. And I think just the third one to, to kind of highlight is talking about the look and feel. We know from quite a lot of the research that actually if a dish has many more colors in it, people find it much more appealing and are more likely to choose it. So actually using a reference to color, rainbow, you know, kind of emphasizing how distinctive and beautiful it will sound, um, and also talking about the mouthfeel can really help uh, play a role in promoting a dish as well. And, and we think that's- What's, also, what's mouthfeel? What's an example of mouthfeel language? Um, so I suppose, uh, you put me on the spot. Um, Rich and buttery, I guess, perfect, right? Thank you, yeah, yeah. perfect. Um, and again, this actually just reinforces the flavor again. Um, so I think as we're thinking about shifting away from don'ts into do's, Do's is about really creating a visual image in someone's head of not only how that dish is going to feel, but how it's going to look and how they're going to feel emotionally eating it. And there's some brilliant work, just to end, I think, by um, uh, Professor Esther Pappies out of Glasgow University, where she's found that people create simulations in their minds before they eat food. And so really, I suppose, in conclusion, what we're finding with the don'ts and do's is don't create negative perceptions in people's minds and poor simulations. Create delicious, exotic, exciting simulations that will really inspire people to choose and then enjoy that food. So I'm going to do this next time I host a dinner party. I cook for friends, and I'm a little modest. I don't talk to them about the food ahead of time, but I think maybe I will. I say, you know, we're going to have three courses, or we're going to have this, and 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 help them make the image before they eat it. Maybe I'll have more successful dinner parties. Well, I look forward to my invite. <laughs> I would be delighted to have you, Daniel. Thanks so much for joining me on the show. Thank you. This is the World Resources Institute podcast. My guest today has been Daniel Venard. Uh, he is the director of the Better Buying Lab, and we've been discussing some early insights from research that the Better Buying Lab is doing with partner organizations. We found it's all in a name, and that if you name things well, you can sell more plant-based food, which is good for the people who eat it and good for the planet. Thanks for listening. Tune in next time for the next WRI podcast. You'll find us in Stitcher, iTunes, and elsewhere you get your podcast. Until next time, I'm Lawrence McDonald. Thanks for joining us.